0: Welcome to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld, your host. I have a special guest today uh, and someone who many of you know, maybe from a few years ago, uh, we had sort of lost track of each other and I'm just so happy we've been able to reconnect recently, Whitney Hess. Whitney, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Lou. I'm so glad that we get to do this today.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're like a a ray of sunshine because here in Brooklyn, we're on like day six of grim gloom, wind, rain. I'm really getting kind of tired of it, but I'm glad I'm not in Florida uh, I don't know how it is up in Maine for you. I guess you get everything a day or two after us. But I'm
1: yeah. I suppose that all that rain's coming to us. But right now it is a beautiful day. It's been around sixty all day. Just until recently, we had some blue skies and we were sitting outside in our backyard. So it's a lovely fall day here.
0: So last time I was in touch with you was some years ago, and you were in the other corner of the U.S. You were in sunny San Diego. Living on a boat, if I recall.
1: Yes, we lived on a sailboat for about two and a half years in America's Cup Harbor in the Point Loma neighborhood of San Diego. And we lived in um, La Jolla before we were on the sailboat. Absolutely loved it there, but made our way back to the East Coast.
0: Yeah, La Jolla, I can, I understand totally. And uh, I remember before that you were in Soho and, uh, no, no, Tribeca. And, I, yeah. I, you know, you're a New Yorker like me. Um, but what I think people might find interesting is, is your, your career, whether they know you or not, that you've been on this interesting journey, not just across the continent, but in, uh, in this industry. So, Whitney, I remember when we first got to know each other probably about 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, I remember you as, um, you know, uh, like an unusually youthful yet <laughs> successful designer.
1: Wow, thank
0: you. That... Like, wow, very accomplished uh, at, at, a, at a pretty early age. And that might have just been me reflecting without realizing it on, on my advancing age, even at that time and the contrast for me but you were you were um I think you made a a a pretty good splash in the industry by doing some really good work uh and now like a lot of people who have excelled in design your coach I am and those are you know there's a through line there for sure but those are also pretty different things and I I was hoping you could, for one, help me at least and maybe some of our listeners decode that path from designer to coach. Like, I I get it, and I don't. (laughs) Uh, I get that maybe there's a design aspect to helping people essentially design their situations, design their work better, design how they see each other, But it's also like the the design material you work with is radically different. Or is it? That's true. Yeah. So, I mean, how do these areas compare? And Talk a little bit about that journey.
1: I would love to. Thank you. You know, I remember you reflecting a similar sentiment when we were first getting to know each other and hanging out. And... I think a big reason why I had success early in my career was because I had started my career in this field, which at the time was unusual.
0: Yes, I think so. I think so.
1: <laughs> so I graduated from Carnegie Mellon in with a master's of human-computer interaction, and I had stayed through from my bachelor's also at SAMU. So I- And the program at the time was only 10 years old. I graduated in 2004 with both my bachelor's and my master's. So it was a huge leg up and I feel incredibly fortunate that I made my way there and that I fell into HCI, which was not what I'd gone to Carnegie Mellon for. I'd gone for computer science. Then I fell in love with writing and really wanted to make writing a part of my path. Miss tech, found HCI. And so I started my career at 23 years old as an interaction designer. And maybe six, eight months on the job of my first full-time job, I started a freelancing business to help make ends meet because I was a young person living in New York City where i was born and raised but i was on my own and i was financially independent and i mean now i don't know how anyone does it now but in 2004 2005 it was crazy it was hard and so i needed extra income and i was working at digitas a uh in interactive advertising agency that now is owned by Publicis and is you know part of a much larger group and i started working with clients on the side. And I did that for about three years. And then in 2008, I quit my full time job, I had gone to a couple different full time jobs at that point. And I had built up my client base, and decided I would go out on my own. And that's when I started really meeting people from UX, going to conferences and events and getting my name out there because it was the only way I knew how to bring in business. And now that was the only form of income that I had. So I really had to be successful early because of that path that I took. And there's all kinds of reasons why I left my full-time job that we could get into or not. But I had a deep love of design and felt incredibly connected to the philosophy of it being a human centered design. And that was always what drove me in my work as a UX practitioner. But because I was growing up as a practitioner and as a business owner, at the same time, a lot of the skills that I was building and utilizing most were about relationship building. And That was with my clients. It was with the agencies and consultancies that were subcontracting part of the projects to me. It was with the stakeholders and the internal teams at the companies that I was collaborating with. It was a lot of relationship building. And in 2012, 2011, 2012, and I'm not remembering, but around there... I had a client in Singapore and I flew out there for 10 days and I was helping them design their first iPhone app. And I had the two co-founders going around with me to home visits. It was a grocery delivery app. And I had convinced them as their UX consultant that we had to go meet people and go into their kitchens and look in their pantries and understand how they were shopping for groceries. And in between the home visits, one of the co-founders and I were in a taxi together and we were having a conversation and what felt like we were off, like we weren't still working and they were talking about concerns that they had about their other co-founder, about the sustainability of the way that they were working, about the strategy for the business, you know, long-term vision, things like that. And we were just riffing and I was being a friend really. And eventually I realized that that connection was so much more meaningful to me than what type of element we used on the page and what the flow of the screens was and the product or the technology. I had cared so much about that at one point, but it just became a lot less relevant. And over time, I designed my business to be involved earlier and earlier and earlier in the project so that I could really support the key decision makers with understanding what was meaningful to them and what was meaningful to their customers and trying to design a business that was sustainable and and aligned with their values. And so then I was like, how do I do this? I don't have a skill set. This is just an instinct that I have around what is needed and what I feel passionate about. And eventually found my way to coaching, went through a year-long program that was incredibly intense. And
0: Which program was that?
1: New Ventures West, highly recommended. At least 20 people have gone through the program that I've referred because I love it so much and talk about it so much. Several of them, in fact, are my clients um, (laughs) and friends and whatnot. And it required me to not just learn how to do coaching, but how to become a coach, it is it is a thing you have to be. And that required me to shift how I valued myself in my own business, being a consultant and particularly being a UX consultant during a time when a lot of businesses had no idea what that meant. And we were very much fighting for attention, not that we aren't still, but a lot different of a situation then. I realized that um, I needed to let go of being an expert. Hmm. My whole identity had been built around being an expert. I got paid the big bucks because I was an expert. And when you're a coach, you're not an expert. You're not an expert on UX careers. You're not an expert on career development, you're not an expert on the person that you're working with or on their company. It's so much more about being a facilitator and really listening and understanding um, what is happening with the person that you're working with, what's happening in the dynamics of their company and helping them to come to the best answers for themselves.
0: So when you're working with a client, are you typically working with an individual, a group or team, a mix? And if it is a mix, is it usually more in one direction or the other or pretty balanced?
1: The vast majority of my work is one-on-one. I have three different streams of business. One is private coaching where people come to me as an individual and they're paying out of pocket. I then have sponsored clients whose employers are paying for the coaching but I'm working with them one-on-one and I'm not involved with the company in any way. And then I have corporate clients. And it's with my corporate clients where I'm coaching several leaders simultaneously, one-on-one, mm-hmm. and then also working with, you know, a sponsor, like my primary point of contact on more organizational design and visioning and values and things like that that's a bit more consultative. And in those cases, I will also do team coaching, whether it be the executive team, a leadership team, uh, a team of people in UX and product and engineering, it varies, but those are the cases where I'm I'm doing that. But for the most part, it really is one-on-one.
0: So. You know, from my limited understanding of coaching, um, you know, I I would imagine that some of the projects or opportunities that you get brought in to help with could be addressed by coaches of many stripes or backgrounds, at least. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And do you find that having a design background is a, a competitive advantage or does it help you solve problems for your clients in a coaching context differently how does that stack up against, let's say, uh, I don't know if you ever find yourself competing with a coach who's got a background in uh, HR or, mm-hmm. or uh, clinical psychology?
1: Totally. That's such a great question. And I see there being two big differences. One is that people really enjoy being able to use a shorthand with me. They don't have to explain the tension between designers and developers. They don't have to explain the tension between the IC track and the manager track. we, We have a shared language, a shared understanding. I've been in a lot of the contexts that they're in. And I have a lot of friends. And my client base is not exclusively UX or product by any means. I have CEO clients, COO clients, but I... I primarily work with people like us Mm -hmm. in our world. And so I understand the nuances. There's a lot that they don't have to explain, which allows us to get to the root of the problem much faster. And I'm also able to see into it, see the patterns in a way that they haven't seen, because maybe the people that I'm working with have worked at three, four, five places over the course of their career. Even the more senior people, they may have been at a company for 10 years, they know how that company works. I have been exposed both through my coaching over the last eight years and from my consulting before that to literally hundreds of businesses. So I get what the design practices and the product practices look like inside of so many different companies, how they're the same, how they vary, et cetera. So that's a huge value add. Then there's also the fact that I believe in a project because of the work that I have done as a UX practitioner. I believe in the holistic engagement. And so my coaching engagements are designed as programs over time. I work with clients for six to 12 months. And a lot of coaches out there are trained in how to coach within a session. They are very skillful at how to open the session, how to create that bond, how to get clear on what the issue is that we're working on together today, how to take them through a few kind of key questions and then how to wrap it up with a great takeaway. And that is a wonderful skill. And I value that very highly. But the work that I'm doing with my clients is developmental. Mm -hmm. It's about how to shift their behaviors, their mindset, their embodiment as leaders over time. And so there is an arc. And the way that I work is a lot less focused on any one individual session. We are in it together from start to finish. There's work that we're doing in between the sessions. And there is a... Sort of scope of work that I helped to create in the beginning through an intake process, asking a lot of questions about what it is they're really looking to shift here. Mm -hmm. And I craft a custom coaching program that then guides us and creates a continuity from session to session. And because of my design background, when I was going through this year long certification program at New Ventures West, which I felt connected to and why I pursued was because it's so much more about the engagement and less about the individual session. I saw very quickly how the coaching process follows the same design process that we know and love, which I boil down to discover, plan, build, iterate. And that's what we're doing in the coaching over Several
0: sessions, several months together. So uh, I like that you do this over time—the six to twelve-month uh, uh, engagement rather than uh, parachuting and doing something for a day, and then getting the hell out. I, I've been—I've been there too many times, both on both ends, yeah. and I know it's not—it doesn't stick. It doesn't really lead yeah, exactly. uh, to any kind of transitional change, but uh, or transformative change. But as a with, with designers. Listening to the podcast, recognize any of the artifacts of that longer term engagement? For example, are you building a roadmap? Are you creating something else that would like glue that arc together over different uh, touch points?
1: Absolutely. And the earliest deliverables are primarily my responsibility because I'm the facilitator of this process. If I'm an expert in anything anymore, it's the process, which I believe is really what the expertise of a designer is. It's not what I think we're often told, which is having to be an expert in the end solution, having to be a magician that or, you know, have a crystal ball and just, know, what the right solution is supposed to be. It's about facilitating the process and helping people get to the right answers, whether it be your client, your stakeholders, whomever is involved in in being of service to your customers. Ideally, um, I do much more of the upfront deliverable building mm-hmm. because that is guiding our time together and setting us on a direction with. Feedback, it's completely co-created, there's nothing that I prescribe or dictate in any way. But then as the engagement goes on, those deliverables of a sort are much more the responsibility of the client and we're co-creating what those should look like and they are then doing the work, getting feedback, not just from me, but creating a community of support around them, whether it be through other leaders in their workplace or through community communities like yours other resources that are available to them and they are essentially establishing a way of being self-generating and self-correcting for the long term without my involvement because that's the ultimate goal it's not to need the coach forever right it's to dip in when there's something more acute happening to have that partner through that period of time, but then to have sort of that long-term integration on your own.
0: Well, you're making me think of something that, um, also came up in a conversation that I had with Peter Merholtz uh, a year or two ago, uh, where he was talking about, uh, working with clients and, um, I think it was uh, he had delivered a a representation of their their org chart in a very designerly way, uh, and they were so excited, and they were like, "Oh, can we use this? You know, and, and can, can we do this ourselves? And can we use things like this for other purposes? And you know, like and he was just, if I remember correctly, he was fairly uh, gobsmacked by the fact that something he took for granted." What was actually a really big deal for his very advanced, very intelligent, uh, and uh, effective clients. And the the takeaway I've got from this conversation as well is what we take for granted as designers. We shouldn't not when we're working and using those skills and and those techniques to to help people with big problems. It's not like we have the only solutions, and not like we we are the experts at solving problems but we do have a pretty useful toolkit that isn't necessarily as understood and appreciated as we might think. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back Whitney, I want to talk with you a little bit about transitions because there were some interesting points of departure in that career journey that you described earlier. We'll do that in just a moment you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. We'll be right back. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people ranging from an enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities again. It is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com slash communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth, we'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to Rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. you're listening to the Rosenfeld review. Welcome back. I'm talking with Whitney Hess. We've been, uh, talking about your career in coaching and the interesting path you took. And, uh, I wanted to get back to that path for a bit, uh, because you had a couple moments that, um, kind of pivot points that I think are really interesting and I'd love to dig in a little more. One was, uh, realizing, uh, maybe you didn't realize you were going to be among the first of a cadre of formally trained UX people uh, in the industry. But as you said before, that is, uh, you were one, and that's, that's something that I think a lot of us hadn't seen. Uh, it was new for a lot of people like myself who had been around forever and, and kind of uh, got to where we were by making stuff up as we went along. Um, but then you had that other... Aha uh-huh moment of transition where you said, "I think it's time to pivot to coaching, rather than doing the uh, doing direct work on on product design and such." Let's talk about that first one. Why you said you didn't just say, "I want to," you know, get an HCI degree from CMU. You were already at CMU. I, I take it. Yes. So what happened?
1: So I was in freshman computer science courses. (laughs) And I was spending a lot of time in the computer cluster, which for those of you who don't know what that is, it is a room filled with computers. (laughs) Technically called a cluster fuck. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. (laughs) To um, use the technology that was not available to us on our own laptops. I did have a laptop and I think it was the first year that, Carnegie Mellon had campus-wide Wi-Fi available, (laughs) and that was a big reason why I wanted to go there. Um, But also, I had taken computer science all throughout high school, and I just love technology. But I was also taking the freshman required writing courses. And I was finding that I was not really interested in spending all of my time in the computer cluster. I wanted to have a different lifestyle. And while I was very drawn to technology at an early age, it was becoming clearer to me that it wasn't about coding, that it was about something else. And so... I ended up switching my major to professional writing, but I still missed tech. And so I was getting this bachelor's in something that I never thought I would be at a place that isn't, at the time, it wasn't particularly known for its writing program. It it happens to be known for it now. Wonderful program, incredible professors across the board. But then I had a friend who said, well, you should consider human-computer interaction. It's the people side of technology. It's about getting on the other side of the screen. It's, It's being in the field and really getting to know what people's needs are so that the right thing can be built for them. I was like, okay, that's speaking my language. Because there was a lot of writing involved in the communication of insights that you were taking from the field back to the people who could implement them. So I felt like this was a good integration of my passions. And I took courses with Bonnie John and-
0: Mm, I remember Bonnie.
1: Love Bonnie, love her dearly and Randy Pausch. Oh wow. Maybe rest in Uh, peace. And I did not know at the time how much I was in the right place at the right time. It felt amazing. And every class was incredible. And I was super engaged. But I did not get how momentous this was until it was time to go look for a job. And I was searching for HCI everything and I couldn't find it. (laughs) It just didn't exist in 2004, looking for HCI. And it was a friend of mine and a a roommate earlier in college who sent me a job posting at Digitas for an interaction designer and said, this kind of sounds like the stuff you've been doing, but I haven't heard you refer to yourself as an interaction designer. And the irony is that there is also an interaction design master's at Carnegie Mellon, but it's in the School of Design the HCI master's is in the school of computer science. So they've actually been working that out recently, but you know, it's almost 20 years later. Mm -hmm. So there was, I really had had a handful of design classes, but I had not been exposed to the practice of interaction design, but that's what it was called. And, and so I, Had a real reality check when I got into this marketing advertising company with a master's degree thinking I was hot shit and everybody around me did not have formal education, but they knew so much more about designing for web, Mm -hmm. which is what we were doing with our clients, American Express, New York Times, Allstate. And everything I'd done in HCI was for expert systems, Mm -hmm. like call centers and airplane cockpits and space shuttles and things like that. So that was a huge shift for me was how do we apply this stuff to the web? That it was pretty amazing when I had a project that we just could not figure out how to move forward. We had done all this brainstorming. Our creative director was not into it. The client wasn't responding. And I, at 23, totally wet behind the ears, said, well, why don't we do user research? Crazy. (laughs) like (laughs) Like I had two heads and then I had to back that up. And I came up with a plan and I pitched it and I thank my boss very much for trusting me and giving me a budget to work with. And my design partner came along and had all these great insights and we made it happen. And that project ended up getting patented by Mm. American Express. So I got a very early boost of confidence, like stick to the philosophy, stick to the process, stick to the practices, teach those methods and techniques, use it, they work. And that was what gave me the sense of, you know, trust in myself to start a consulting business and to bring that stuff out into the world.
0: And then uh, you were doing that for a while and then you had that other aha moment.
1: Yeah. So I was doing that for over 10 years um, before I had this, next realization about the coaching and you know it it was in part that story that i tell you about my client in singapore and realizing this is so much more about relationships than it is about tech but it also came from a sense that i was having as a consultant that i was coming in to help them solve them their problems and maybe The problem that they handed me was solved at the end of the engagement, but I really wasn't addressing the thinking that had created the problem in the first place. And I was feeling really down about that. Like the stuff that I do doesn't have long lasting effect, just like you were saying about the duration of coaching. And it's very intentionally designed so that the change is slow and steady which is lasting, Mm -hmm. as opposed to kind of flash in the pan. And I was wanting to find a way that I could have a greater impact beyond the individual project that I was working on. So it started with it being UX coaching. So I just talked about the work that I do. I pitched myself to prospective clients differently. I'm not gonna take your project and do a bunch of work on it on my own and hand you the solution. I wanna engage your team. And I want to help coach your team through the process, whether you have a design team or not, whether they're UX oriented or not. Maybe we need to bring in more people or maybe it's about finding the people across the company that are interested in this stuff and engaging them. And so it started that way. And it was when I wrote my first contract that had no deliverables Hmm. for me that I realized I'm coaching now. Wow,
0: well, you know, Whitney, I think there's one other thing that I take away from this, that uh, I don't know if you've mentioned, and maybe it's not as obvious to you because you're so close to this, it's your career, but um, throughout everything you've said, you gave yourself permission mm. to try something and to wade into unfamiliar waters. Uh, it's not easy. Maybe you're naturally entrepreneurial and, and uh, I can identify with that. That's That's been the case for me. Um, but, you know, I, I guess that's a question that that's a broader question, really, regardless of what direction we go into our careers. How comfortable are we with the unknown? Mm. And um, yes. maybe um, folks like me, we're noticing folks like you who who came from uh, areas uh, or like you know programs in this particular case that that seemed to be more set um, and didn't have to you didn't have to necessarily synthesize that as much as we might have 10 20 years earlier on the other hand you didn't stay there and i i mean that's impressive that you you could have right i mean you could still be doing that same kind of work you were doing 20 years ago. I'm sure there's a lot of opportunities uh, for experienced uh, interaction designers. I know there are, um, but give yourself some credit for um, being willing to take a, a risk on yourself.
1: Mm. Thank you so much for saying
0: that. Not that you asked, but I'm Thank just noticing you. No, it. I
1: really appreciate that. And and it resonates so deeply. And. It makes me think of a resource that I can share um, around that topic because giving yourself permission to go from something that you're good at to something that you're not sure you could be good at, but that's truly calling your heart. It's scary. Yeah. It's really, really scary. And it's where all the goodness is. It's where all the juice is. And I'm incredibly grateful that I have whatever that thing is instilled in me to trust myself to take the risk. And I think that that's a big part of what I help unlock
0: mm-hmm. in my clients. Mm-hmm.
1: I am. I, I have so much faith in them from go that I think sometimes they borrow some of it from me so that they can have a little bit more for themselves and take those risks. And not everything I've done has paid off. Okay. I've made lots of mistakes. I have hurt myself. I've hurt people. I'm sure that just like everybody else, I've had those missteps in my life, but I don't hold them as failures because they've always taught me something about myself they've always taught me something about the world around me and they've always given me more insight into what action to take next so'm I'm, I'm grateful for that mindset and I'm grateful for the privilege that I have to be able to live a life like this
0: well and I like your um, the way you put it it's almost as if as if there's uh, your clients are able to take a maybe a withdrawal out of the, the bank of uh, Whitney's energy. And, and, yes. uh, uh But then they're, you know, put, putting that into other people. And uh, exactly. that's a good thing. Whitney, great conversation. I wish we could go on. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'm looking forward to seeing you one of these days in New York, or maybe I'll look you up in, on the main coast. What are you, mid coast? i am visit
1: anytime.
0: All right. Thanks for joining us today. Whitney Hess, uh, coach. Uh, former interaction designer, putting, putting those things together in some really great ways. More power to you.
1: Thank you so much, Lou.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at RosenfeldReview.com.